Colossians chapter 1. Uh, on your notes, we will be on the third page is where we're at. Um, if you're looking. Some of the, I think some of the notes, the pages are numbered. Some they're not, but it doesn't matter. It's still page 3. I will uh, read uh, verse 21 through the end of the... Uh, through, uh, uh, 21 through 23. Uh, I'm, again, I'm reading from the... Uh, the uh, Holman Standard Version. So it would be a little different from the English Standard. It says, Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So in verse 23, where he says here, if indeed you remain grounded, uh, I think the ESV says basically the wording is if you continue in the faith uh, is what Paul is saying and what he's getting at. So again, as we mentioned before, he's, this is not a, a contingency where if you do this, then this will happen. In other words, it's not the idea that if you do this, you'll stay saved. Uh, even if a verse sounds like it might be saying that, what we know from all of Scripture is that salvation, again, is all of grace. There's no, nothing you do to earn it. There's nothing you do to be in a better position to receive it. Uh, it is all done by the grace of God. And then when it comes to remaining saved, uh, even though we are to pursue holiness, we are to pursue uh, spiritual maturity as believers, our remaining saved is not based on works that we do. It's not based on achieving some list of things that God gives us. Uh, we, are, we remain saved because of God's grace. God has made a promise to us. God keeps his word. Uh, again, as I mentioned many times before, sometimes uh, when we speak of that facet of the Christian life, some people become a little nervous because they are afraid that if we emphasize this idea that we remain saved by God's grace, that that then means that we will not pursue holiness and we will then choose to live in sin as if it doesn't matter. So what we know from reading scripture is basically this. Number one, when we become Christians, we're still going to sin. So that's, we're not saying we're not going to sin anymore. We also know from the scripture that we will struggle from time to time with sin. We struggle with different things. Sometimes we struggle at different points in life. But basically what we, can, what we should be able to say is that the trajectory of our life is towards God. And that can look a little different for different people, but we're not trying to stress that you have to hit certain marks uh, because we all have different backgrounds and there's different reasons uh, why we may grow at different rates or however you want to phrase that. But along with that, what we say is that if a person becomes so entangled in sin as a believer that that individual uh, appears for all intents and purposes to be living as a, as a non-believer. And I know that I'm not really describing in too much detail what that looks like, but just in general. Then a couple of things come to mind. Number one, it is still possible that that individual may be a believer, and, but there's a warning in Scripture. And the warning is, is that if you are a true believer and you become that entangled in sin, you can lose rewards, though you will not lose your salvation, but you can lose rewards... And there's also the possibility that God's discipline will be you dying before your time. He would take you 
yes, he takes you home. The other thing is, is it's a possibility that you never really became a believer. And that can happen. Um, in fact, Jesus taught, there's a story where he talks about the, what we call the parable of the sowers. And there's this farmer who throws the seed and it talks about, in one place it kind of it lands on rocky ground, another one it actually kind of springs to life and it sprouts, then it dies very quickly. And then there's another one where it kind of, it seems like it takes root and you're expecting fruit and then it's choked out. And then there's a the last soil that it's planted, the roots grow deep and it produces, um, it produces fruit. There's a lot of different ways that people kind of interpret that passage. Um, I do think that the most accurate is that in general, uh, I guess you would say a fourth of those who become believers are what we might call true believers. But again, that's not a hard and fast thing. The Bible doesn't give us percentages like that or numbers. It serves as a warning for us to make sure, and you know, this place where Paul says, examine your faith or examine your life to make sure you are of the faith. So that, that, that idea is there, uh, and we are to do that really on a, on a, when I say regular, that doesn't mean every day, doesn't mean every week, but that's kind of to be in our thoughts as believers, that we are uh, looking to continue to grow, to mature, to improve, that kind of thing. So we don't have to worry about this idea that if we emphasize the fact that God is the one who keeps us saved, that we're giving permission for others to go out and, and just sin, that no one's doing that. And again, if an individual then does that, it's an indication that that individual may not be saved. And I always say may, because we have to be careful that we're not running around trying to judge other people's salvation. Uh, we are to judge our salvation. And when it comes to other people, um, there's nothing wrong with, number one, identifying that there may be trouble. All right? But how do we respond to that? The way we respond to that is, number one, we, we should immediately begin to pray for that individual, because um, we don't know the situation. Um, if you are in a position, right, so let's say you know the individual, then you may be in a position to bring up that individual, whatever's going on, what you're, what you're observing. Uh, you know, like what's going on, I've noticed this, whatever the case may happen to be, because you really desire, you want to help them. It's, it, it should never be that we are excited about confronting someone with maybe sin in their life. I mean, there should always, I think there should always be a little bit of trepidation. Um, at the same time, we don't want to become, we don't want to have so much trepidation that we're fearful and we say nothing, because that may be dangerous as well. Uh, so again, there's, you know, that requires judgment or maturity on our part to be able to handle that correctly. But as far as we are concerned as individuals, and again, remember the Bible is a mirror first. We want to make sure that we have a good grasp on what it is that God expects from us. And there is this... Uh, uh, an assumption made by God that we are going to continue to be faithful and live faithfully to God. And again, as I said, we're not saying what that exactly looks like because we're at different places in our life, but there should be this growth in the Lord. Um, and so we should be troubled. And, that, and that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to gather as believers. Because if you don't gather as believers, there's no way for you to ever even know how you're, how you're growing. How would you even evaluate that? But when we're with each other, we can kind of tell um, that we're growing um, as individuals. There's others looking out for us. We're praying for them. They're praying for us. We want to encourage each other. There's all those kinds of things that take place. 
Um, and so we want to make sure that that's kind of where our mind is with that. He tells us here that we want, when he tells us that we are to continue in the faith, um, again, we should ask the question, what is the faith he's speaking of? Um, because I don't think that particularly here, he is speaking of your saving faith. He, he is speaking of the faith. The word the, the word the is a definite article. So when it says that you are continuing in the faith, he doesn't just say, are you continuing in faith, but in the faith. So the faith in this verse is not an act, is not referencing the act when you believe in Christ. It is referencing what you do believe, what it is we believe, what is that faith, uh, which again is the unchangeable message of Jesus Christ. It is a body of Christian truth which brings salvation uh, to the one who receives it. So the faith refers to a body of doctrine or a, a body of truths that were given to us by God, uh, primarily through the apostles. Uh, historically, in Christianity, um, there have been you know, lots of conflicts within Christianity. There are enemies of the faith. The world uses violence and sometimes maybe curses or, or denunciations or whatever they have to try to uh, maybe push what we might call heretical views. But it's always coming against the faith. So what is the faith? So again, the faith is what we will, the, if you put it in the smallest form, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is primarily that Jesus is God, that he has come in the flesh, that he lived on earth as a man. He obeyed the word of God. He obeyed the law of God perfectly. He then willingly laid his life down to be the propitiation for our sin, to be our substitute. God laid on him our sin. Then Jesus was punished as if he had committed the sins that we have committed. He died. Then he was buried. And he rose again. That's the gospel message. All of us believe that when we became believers. Normally, we understand that message better the longer that we're saved. Initially, for most of us, when we become believers, we may understand that message to varying degrees, but maybe not the depth of it. Some people will understand it a great deal because let's say they were raised in church, raised in a Christian home, they've heard it a lot. But it's not, even with that, it's not unusual for the individual to say, after many years of being saved, it's almost like, you know, I'm really understanding the gospel more now than ever. And that's a good thing, all right? Because we're, you know, we have a better understanding of sin, a better understanding of our sin, of, of, of not just that we were separated from God, we kind of have a sense of how separated we were from God. Um, so there's a deepening and maybe an expansion of our understanding of our salvation and really how good that God is and that we were always really undeserving uh, of that. So that's why, um, I don't want to say more so for those who are raised in church, but it could be true. But that's why it's not unusual for some individuals after they've been saved, maybe for several years, to experience a time in their life where they begin to, they begin to feel a greater sense of grief for their past life because they understand now maybe the seriousness of what they, they did. I know for myself, when I first became a believer, um, I was 10 or 11, I wasn't feeling a whole lot of grief. I knew I had done wrong though. I knew that I had disobeyed my parents. I knew that I, so there was no, I, there was no question that I had, was a sinner. I knew that, and I knew that was true, and I knew that the gospel was true, and I knew that Christ was the only way, and I believed that, 
uh, with all the knowledge that an 11 year old could have. Um, but now that I'm older, when I look back on my life, not just my sins before I was 10, because I was young, but any of, any of the sins I've committed, you know, there's times in my life where I just, the word loathe is a great word. I have a sense of loathing for myself when I look back at certain things that I've done, maybe things I've said to people or maybe how I treated them, uh, that kind of thing. And there's just this overwhelming regret uh, that I have. And I, I'm, I'm really, in one sense, even though I'm grieved by that, I'm happy because I know that God's changing my heart. Um, because you don't want to live the rest of your life and that really never bothering you. It should bother you. And that's a good thing. But at the same time, it doesn't, I, I'm not, I don't collapse under that because at the same time, I'm also fully aware of God's graciousness. It can and, be a uh, heavy weight to carry. Huh? It can be a heavy weight to carry. It can, but the Lord is there to, to relieve that. And the way I think about it is this. We do have to be careful when we, when we try to put in human terms when it comes to certain attributes that God possesses and maybe certain graces that we experience. But even though we have to be careful, that doesn't mean stay away from them because they can be very helpful. So I think of this. So, you know, all my kids are growing up. So even though I love my, my kids and they love me, our relationships are very different because they're all adults. When it comes to my grandchildren. So if one of my grandchildren, for whatever reason, if they were to sin against me greatly, let's just say it's like stab in the back, you know, the whole deal. And then one day, they were to ask me to forgive them and they're sorry. Do you know how long it would take me to forgive them? They're already forgiven. I, I love them. And what, I, and what we sometimes need to remind ourselves is God loves me more than I love my grandchildren. That blows me away. Because I can't imagine anyone loving me like that. I really can't. Because I know how ugly I've been in my life. Um, then of course the other thing that blows my mind is this, no matter how much I love my grandchildren, God loves them more than I do. But that's also a wonderful thing. I mean, that's, that is a great thing. Um, and that's true for all of us. Um, and so, but I think those kinds of things help us to understand maybe a little more and helps us to grasp really the, the personal nature of God. He's not just this big, majestic, spirit that's outside of us, though he is, but he's also, he's transcendent in that way. But at the same time, he's also very close to us. Um, and that is also in the nature of God. And that is a wonderful thing uh, to, to, to be able to have that kind of intimate relationship with the God of the universe. So again, uh, let me just, there's a quote here I want to read to you from uh, one of the commentaries that I was reading. It says this, an effective defense of the gospel demands that God's truths must be embodied in the life of the defender of the faith, the gospel. The most convincing argument for the faith is not the argument of one's words, but the argument of one's life. To contend effectively for the faith is costly and agonizing work. It is the duty of every believer to contribute toward the defense and the preservation of the faith. To do so, they must show themselves saintly, or as Paul exhorts the Colossians, to continue in the faith. So what he's trying to put it together there to help us to understand is we want to make sure that when, when we contend for the faith or when we continue in the faith, it's not only that there is this intellectual commitment to the truth of the gospel. That's important. 
but there's also this life that's being transformed. So if I was, let's say I was talking to David, and let's say that David's a non-believer, and I, and, but let's say he's very interested in Christianity, and we've had some long talks about that, and, and so as we're kind of going through this, as he's learning about Christianity, let's say that he sees or becomes more and more aware of some things in my life that are really unsavory, things that really don't speak well of a believer. Okay, that taints the message. It doesn't change the intellectual truth of it, but it taints the message and, and may be enough to cause him to really doubt the credibility of the gospel because I'm not continuing the faith in that way. So it's, it's both those things together. Uh, and so it's really important that we don't miss that because sometimes Christians, because we're human beings, we can, we can make a mistake on one side or the other. Either A, we're so committed to the actual, just the truths themselves, we make it all about just that and almost not even pay attention to the way we treat each other, the way we behave. On the other hand, there are those who may even have seen that and they're so concerned how we come across that though they don't intend to, even though some might, even though they don't intend to, they might begin to compromise the truth of the gospel in wanting to make sure that they're kind and gracious and understanding. Um, and so and the way that happens is, uh, you know, for whatever the reason, we don't call sin, sin. Like, I, I, when I used to work in the jail, and I think maybe just because of a way a jail is and, and just the atmosphere that's there, it kind of lends people sometimes to ask maybe questions maybe more forthrightly than they would in a normal audience. And so there have been times when, you know, I'm talking to a group and we talk about the gospel and we talk about salvation, those things, and then a guy will raise his hand and he'll say something like this. He may say, I am gay. Can I stay gay and be a Christian? That's a tough one. You don't want to shun them away, but you also know no one can put conditions or preconditions on coming to Christ. I, it doesn't matter what that is. Just because the person says, I'm gay, and that, that's not an unusual question. So what I would say is, one, no one can put any preconditions on that. So the answer would be, no. If you've determined to hold on to any sin, say, well, I want to be in Christ, but I want to be this. And it's almost like saying, well, I want, to come, I want to come to Christ, and I want to believe in Christ for salvation, but, but I'm, going to, I'm still going to deal with drugs. What would, people would immediately say, oh, no, you can't do that. But for whatever the reason, maybe because of all the various emotions that people may have about certain sins, people kind of hesitate when it comes to those things. So we want to make sure that we're not afraid to state the truth, but again, you don't want to come across like you're happy about it. You know, you don't, you know, like, because I've heard some people do that. You know, it's almost like, no, you're burning hell. And it's like they're happy about it. That's not the way that it's supposed to be. All right? So we want to be truthful to the individual. We want to know they're not the only one in that position. But God is the one who has basically told us we come to Christ as we are. Absolutely. So what I don't tell them is I don't tell them, well, you have to give up being gay to come to Christ. I don't say that. Because we don't say that about anything. But I also know this. When you come to Christ that'll go away. It may be hard, it may be difficult, but you can't predetermine what you want to keep. We give to him our life and we keep what he says we can keep. Uh, when I was, uh, now I was already a believer, but 
you know, I used to, when I was a teenager, I used to pray to God that he would open certain doors for me. And it was all predicated on very selfish desires. I wanted to play football. I wanted to play football in college. And so I had it all worked out as to how God can bless me that way. <laughs> you know, God, if I play football well, then I can tell more people about Jesus. Also, what we have to ask is, how many people are you telling now about Jesus? Well, none. <laughs> so what makes you think when this happens, you're going to do it? But I was, so, but I was you know, I'm being selfish. I'm trying to orchestrate all these things. So in the end, basically, and of course, the Lord, in his graciousness, broke me of that. And the way that he did that, literally, in my life, was, um, I think it's, it's all about God. My knee was busted in half. The Lord just took it away. It was so important. I was not even thinking about giving it up. So the Lord took it away. I have no regrets over that. I didn't like it then, but I have no regrets over that. It was exactly what needed to happen, and it was for my good. Same way that, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard the illustration about the shepherd and the sheep. If a sheep keeps wandering and he, and he continues to do that, the shepherd will go get that sheep, and he'll snap the leg in half. Then he puts a splint on it, and then he carries it. Now, usually it's a lamb. Sheep can get kind of big, but usually it's a lamb. But he carries it, and while it heals, and from what I've read, because I'm not a shepherd, but from what I've read, is that when that leg heals, that lamb, even as it grows and becomes a sheep, will never, ever wander again. It's, I mean, it's amazing uh, how that works. And so that's, there's many different reasons why we're called sheep uh, in the Bible as believers. But so we want to make sure that we, that again, we recognize this. So again, as Paul is describing the majesty of Christ and all that Christ does for us, and he gets into the holiness and presenting us in this, in, you know, presenting us to the Father and, and all these changes that are supposed to happen. It's also still wrapped up in this language where he's at the same time emphasizing this intimate relationship that we have with Christ. So uh, the last way to, to talk about that would be this. So we would say that when two people get married, it is the demand of our culture, it would be the demand of our religion, and it's the demand of what the institution of marriage is, that both those individuals remain faithful to each other. Everybody would, most everybody would agree with that. But in that relationship, what we kind of expect to happen, and maybe what we would appreciate the most, is that even though they're both committed to that, we want it to be true that they both want to be committed to that because they love each other. So, it's, it's, so we want their love for each other to be strong enough that if either one of them are in, a, are in a situation where let's say there's someone who's trying to come onto them because they love their spouse, there's no real temptation. It's not just, well, I know I'm gonna get caught, so I'm not doing that. Now it's still good they don't give in, but we, it, it's best if it's because they love uh, and so same idea with our relationship with God. Yes, there are many commands in the scripture, and we need those, and that gives us guidance and wisdom and all those things. But the idea that I think Paul develops throughout all of his writings, um, and maybe always underlies all of his teaching, though even though there are times it's not specifically stated, it comes from all of his things being put together, there's that, that idea that, of course we do these things, it's because we love the Lord. I want to be together with God's people to worship because I love the Lord. I want to tell others about Christ because I love the Lord and because I love them, but I love the Lord. I want to be faithful to God. I want to be faithful to my wife. I want to be faithful to my children because I love the Lord. And, and that's, what, that's the thing that should, be, that should drive us. 
And I, that's one of those things that God produces in us. You can't, you know, just declare one day, I am now going to love God twice as much as I did yesterday. It just, just doesn't work that way. Uh, but that love does, and it can grow, absolutely. Um, and it's, it's a marvelous thing. So uh, the idea is that uh, he, he mentions here that uh, we are to continue the faith stable and steadfast or maybe not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Uh, the word stable means firmly established. Um, uh, it is, it is uh, a word which basically describes something that is beneath, like a foundation. Uh, it refers to something that is secure or permanent. It's a word that's used in talking about laying a foundation or providing a foundation. So the idea is this. The Colossians who were saved, they have been placed on the foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ, with the result that they were grounded on him. So the picture here that is conveyed by the word that is used for stable is of a house which is firmly fixed on a foundation that is not moved by the winds or the floods, uh, or figuratively by the stormy waves of suffering or the loud howling roar of our adversary, the devil. Uh, this initial grounding is a once-for-all act on the part of God uh, where when, uh, and it occurs when we place our faith in Christ and it secures permanent results. So one of the best examples of that I can think of is this. I read this um, toward the end of last year. Uh, Don put... In the, on the back of our, when we used, when we used to have a, a prayer sheet on Wednesday nights, on the back there was a story about this young boy, I believe it was in Afghanistan, it, may have, it, may, it could have been Iraq or Iran, but it was in a Muslim country. He was 15 years old, he was raised in a Muslim home, no one in his family was Christians, he, and he became a Christian. What is very common uh, in many of, the, of those kinds of places is that when a member of the family becomes a believer, the entire family, uh, they're, they're very unhappy. And the father would, or an older brother would normally kind of take the lead on this because they, they want to change it. They believe that that person has turned against the family, has turned against their religion, has turned against their culture, and they believe that they are then going to go to hell as an infidel. And so they would do whatever they can to plead with that individual to, to, to change their mind, to renounce their Christianity. Uh, in some places, depending on their knowledge of Christianity, for some of them, it becomes more intense up until that person is baptized. For them, the idea of being baptized is kind of the, you, can't, you don't go back from that. And so they, and they'll put pressure. Now, they're so intense on, intent on this that they are not beyond doing this, where they will, uh, either family members themselves will do this, or they will have others in the neighborhood do this, but they will kidnap that individual and then torture them to get them to renounce Christ. And if they end up killing them, they really do believe uh, that it's an act of mercy. They, I, it's not like they, they don't take joy in that. They don't want to do that. But they will because, again, they believe they're saving them uh, and perhaps Allah will forgive them. Of course, they're not even sure Allah's going to forgive anybody, but that's another thing. So anyway, back to this boy. He's 15 years old. So he's not raised in a Christian home. He, he doesn't have a Bible. The, the gospel has been explained to him, I believe, by another former Muslim who's become a Christian. He understands the gospel. He believes in Christ with all of his heart, mind, and soul. Within a matter of days, 
or maybe a matter, at least at least a matter of weeks. His family takes him, they tie him up, they put him in a room, and they start to torture him. He doesn't renounce his faith. He holds on to it. This young man is rooted on the foundation of Christ, and Christ supplies him with the grace he needs to endure, and they end up torturing him until they kill him. As I thought about that, you know, and I hear about Christians being tortured and dying, and almost a, a majority of the stories, maybe all of them, but a majority of the stories that I hear or that I've read about is an individual who's been a believer for several years, and they've had an opportunity to grow and to understand many things, theologically, biblically, etc. But here's a young man who didn't know any of that. All he knew was just the gospel that had been presented. That's all he knew. Which is amazingly, in one sense, a very tiny amount compared to what all of us know. And yet that was enough for him to bravely withstand really the horrendous tortures that he went through and not renounce Christ. That blows my mind. I, you know, when, when we die and go to heaven, you know, I'm not sure how all this is going to Going to, going to work, but if we have this opportunity to meet individuals, I want to, I want to meet him. I want to embrace him. I, I, I want to encourage whatever. I don't think we really need encouragement in heaven because it would be pretty great. But the idea is, I mean, this guy is, this is incredible. And I, to me, that speaks so strongly of the unbelievable power of God absolutely transform someone's life and we're, what we're thinking about here is you think about it so his life was transformed to to being this steadfast believer in Christ with unmovable faith it took place instantly there's no human way to explain that that's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about and I, I think that um, if nothing else it should make maybe American Christians to feel a little uncomfortable with themselves because our faith is usually a lot weaker than that. Um, now, just remember this. The grace you need to withstand intense physical persecution, God will not give that to you until you need it. So we might be thinking, oh, but there's no way I can go through that. Maybe right now you can. But when, if that time was to come, because God's never late, God has promised us he would carry us through those things. And so when you need it, you will receive it. It won't be early. We sometimes may think it's coming just in the nick of time, but God was never panicking. Um, sometimes, you know, I, I've experienced that before when it comes to God answering prayer when my family had some needs and there was no, you know, when I was a missionary, there was no money, you know, and when we had our last meal and there was literally nothing left, not even rice, then the guy showed up with food. So I'm thinking, whoa, that was close. Well, God didn't think it was close. <laughs> he says, well, they're having the last meal Tuesday. Wednesday morning, this guy be there. <laughs> you know, that's how it's going to be. So uh, anyway, so we just, so I, but I do think that kind of, that, like a story like that needs to remind us um, of the reality, the power, the actual influence that God uh, has in the lives of individuals today and that he's not just some spirit off in the distance you know wanting us to believe certain truths but he's not really involved um, he's very much involved in our lives in that way so I just think you know again that stories like that um, 
I think, kind of illustrate the things that Paul is talking about here. The word steadfast that's used means that it's something that's settled. Um, it is... Uh, it paints the picture maybe of someone who is firmly seated in a chair. Your mind is settled uh, on the truth. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the idea. Like again with that young man, his mind was settled. He believed the truth. He knew the truth. And so there was no wavering. So when it says there that there's no shifting or you're not moved away, it, it's just another way of repeating the same truth uh, that he's talking about. It means that you literally do not move from one place to another. You're not shifted. You're not stirred uh, in any way. Um, you're, you're not removed. You don't move. Um, it, you're not moved away from the hope that we have in Christ. You remain steadfast. Um, it is in the present tense, which means this is, this is continuously. Uh, and the idea here is when it comes to being steadfast and immovable, it's what they call the passive voice, which means that the subject, which is the believer, is affected by an outside force. So, so what that means is this is what God does in us and to us. God is doing this. So it's, again, it's not you and I trying to muster up the faith, the face, whatever. As I, as you, as you read the Bible, as we pray, what we, what we would call the normal disciplines of the Christian life. We meet with other believers, we go to church, we read the Bible on our own, we read the Bible together, we study the Bible, we, we sing the truths uh, about the Bible, uh, we, you know, we pray to God, we ask God to answer prayers for all various kinds of things. As all that goes on, God works in you and he brings about this position where we become an individual who's, who's not going to be shifting. You're not going to be like the sand when the wind blows and everything becomes different. It's not going to happen to you. But again, remember, that's not based on the way you feel. Okay? Because sometimes we can think, well, I just, I know myself. And I know that I can be weak. God knows that as well. But this is not necessarily that your emotions change. Though I do think emotions will change. Normally, our emotions are the last thing to change. So that we don't get hung up on that. But your faith becomes more firmly established. So I don't know if you've experienced this or even thought about this, all right? Uh, but I, again, I'll just use myself as an illustration of, of where my mind has gone. So I didn't think a lot about this when I was younger about my faith in Christ. I didn't think about like how strong is it or how strongly I believe. That just, it just was never a thing, all right? But there's been from time to time when I meet different people or when I read through the scripture and I begin to think about how strongly do I believe what the Bible says? And so, I, I cannot describe where I was when I was 20, but I know where I am now. It's much more firm. <clears throat> it's almost like if someone says, Bob, do you, do you believe that Jesus is God's son? I would now say it's more than just believe. I know he's God's son. I'm not saying that because I'm trying to be arrogant and say I know all things. It's got nothing to do with that. Because my knowledge is based on what God has revealed. But my belief in that, or my knowledge of that, is rooted so much deeper because of what I have learned again from Scripture, what God has done in my life as, as I grow, which again is it's not a unique thing with me. This is true for every believer. So that, that firmness of faith is there for all of us to where 
we will, you should be able to say, and again, I, it doesn't mean if it's, you know, how long is it? Is it after five years? Is it after three years? Is it after 10 years? I don't know. All I know is, is that your belief, the strength of your faith does grow stronger to where there may come a moment in your life when you think about it, you can never imagine any scenario that you would waver. It doesn't exist. I used to think, because I read a lot of books about Christians who were being tortured for being believers. Uh, part of that was because I met uh, Richard Rembrandt, guy who wrote the book Torture for Christ. Uh, I met another guy named Harlan Popov. They were both in Russian prisons for 15 to 20 years because they were Christians. They were tortured. It was horrible what happened to them. And I read those books and several like them. And so I spent a lot of time at times just kind of thinking about at what point would I break? At what point would I say, yeah, I'm whatever. And it was just difficult to imagine there not being a point when I would just say, yeah, I'm done. But now when I think about it, and I know pain can be unbelievably intense, but I'm not, even, I'm not really worried about it. And it's not because I think I'm tougher now. I don't, think I, I don't think that. I just trust God. And I just, I just know that all that is true. And just, there's no going back. And I think maybe a lot of you probably are, that's where you may be now as a believer. You're like, you know what? I mean, I don't want to go through that. But yeah, I just can't imagine there being anything that would make me change my mind. Yes, you want to say something? Does God ever test your faith? Yes, he does. In fact, he says he does. Um, but the testing of our faith is not so much, it's not for God's sake. God's not saying, hmm, I wonder how she'll do if she's tested. That's not what he's doing. He already knows. He's doing it for your, for your benefit. So it, it could be several things. Number one, you may... Go through a time of testing so the Lord can show you how far you've come. As you, kinda, as you go through the experience, you realize, you know what? Man, this happened two years ago. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been able to handle this. And so that can be encouraging. It could be that the Lord is doing to show you that you're not what you thought you were. Like, you know, that you, let's say you, may, you go through doubts or whatever it may happen to be. And you may, as you sit there, or maybe as you talk with another mature believer, you may end up coming to the conclusion, you know, I, I really thought I was stronger than this. And so it's not, it's not a, a thing where God's up there saying, yeah, I told you so. God's not doing you that. It's so we kind of wake up and say, you know what? Yeah, I need to, I need to kind of strengthen my faith because I'm, I'm really disappointed in myself. Sometimes it may even be that our faith is being tested for someone else's sake. They're seeing what's happening to you and as you handle it as a believer, they're encouraged because they see how you handle it. And so they see God at work uh, in your life, whether that person is a believer or a non-believer. And then, of course, there's always the possibility that all of that, to some degree, is being done at the same time. Uh, so we never want to take lightly any, any strenuous situation we, we come into uh, that may test our faith um, because God is, God is working in that. Yes, sir? Um, could you explain the difference between testing and tempting tempting in this uh, respect also Jesus the Bible says Jesus was tempted by the devil mm -hmm. and this also says God cannot be tempted correct and uh, can you explain how that uh, yeah part of the problem part of the problem with, with uh, temptation and what's the other word testing testing is sometimes the problem is the King James the King James will use those two terms interchangeably and that's 
that's, that's, that's uh, sad. But the context will always save you. And, and all the scripture will save you. So number one, uh, sometimes the word tempt is just another word for, what was the other word? Testing. Testing. Good grief. All right. So, so it's just using the change of me that way. So when it talks about the Lord being tempted, he was being tempted, but at the same time, God cannot be tempted. So when we read through scripture, James tells us that when we are tempted, we're drawn away by our own lust. That's what gives temptation strength, is the darkness of my heart, not, not the temptation. So when Satan was tempting Jesus, what he was offering him was real. So it was a real temptation, but it was never appealing to Jesus because Jesus has no sin in his heart and he's, his loyalty to God is unwavering. So as a man, there was a temptation. So the only way I can think of illustrating that was, I'm sorry, David, but you're on the front row. Uh, so, if David, so if David offers me uh, a, um, a dime bag of heroin, he's tempting me, but there's no temptation. I've never used drugs, so there's no real, I have no desire for that. So, yes, we could still say at the same time, yeah, I'm being tempted, but I'm not being tempted. So same kind of thing. Um, so God does not tempt us with evil. So, God, so if God is going to test our faith, he's not going to come along and tempt you to sin. But when God tests us, he may allow us to be in a situation where either we may have doubts about what God is doing or not doing. There's a lot of ways that can come. But our, it's our trust in him, our trust in what he said, that is, in a sense, under attack or under the weight of the, of the temptation. But God never uses sin to tempt us. Does that make sense? So there's testing, and there can definitely be testing without temptation. God does it all the time. But that's why, thank goodness in English, we have both those words and others. Testing and temptation, they're not the same thing. <coughs> They can be used interchangeably at times, but the context is what will help us in the scripture. So the devil was trying to tempt Jesus, but Correct. Jesus was not tempted. Correct. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. But what we want to make sure is that, because sometimes a non-believer will do this, they'll say, oh, well, then it was phony. Okay, but there's nothing phony about it. So again, if he offers me heroin, there's nothing phony about that. If it's, if it's real heroin and he has it to give to me, then that's a very real temptation. At the same time, there's no temptation because there's no appeal. So with Christ, same thing. It was, it was a real temptation, but it's not like Jesus was thinking about it. Hmm. So the devil was trying you know. to tempt him, but of Jesus course. had no reaction. Exactly, exactly. Well, he had a reaction, but not in that sense. Yeah, correct. Yeah, theologians can get into big, long discussions about that. There's books that thick written on that. <laughs> but I think we can just make it a lot simpler. <laughs> you know, Jesus is God. He's not tempted to do evil. He's perfect. That's it. Uh, but the Bible does make it clear, though, that uh, in Hebrews, it tells us that we have a high priest who understands what we go through. Again, remember, he was still 100% man. But remember, he was never born with a sin nature. So there's the differences, but that doesn't mean he was less human. Right? He still had desires, passions, all the things that we have, yet without sin. Now, I don't know how, we don't know what that looks like. We will one day, 
but we don't know what that's like. We've never been in that position um, because the flesh has been corrupted by sin and we still live in these corrupted bodies that are, you know, waning away. Yes, sir. And uh, Hebrews says he was tempted to. Yes, in all areas like we were, absolutely, yes. Yeah, so that's why when, we, when, we, uh, when we're talking to God, whether we're confessing sin or asking God for help, we also then are encouraged because we know that he really does understand. So there's, there, there's, there's that sense of empathy that's there. Um, I think I've mentioned to you before, there's a fancy word that's used for God, when we describe God and also God understanding us, we call those anthropomorphisms. And all that means is we talk about human traits um, to help us to understand God. So when we talk about God empathizing with us, it doesn't mean that Jesus was weak and he was really wavering and he almost gave in. That, that's not what that is. But he does clearly understand, understand even through experience, what the weakness of the flesh is like and what we, what we go through. And so then there's no shame in us admitting to God that we are weak and asking God to help us. Because, and he will do that because he does understand. And, that is, that's, and that's a great picture of God. Um, God is firm on his demand for holiness, absolutely. Um, there's an illustration I came up with a long time ago when I was working in the jail, trying to help the inmates really kind of grasp this idea of how we pursue holiness <coughs> and this absolute demand of God that's never wavering. Uh, but how God responds to us. And the best thing I could come up with is if I told Ron, let's say I, let's say I, I come into a lot of money, and so I, I, I become very wealthy, and I say, Ron, I really like you, so I'm, I'm going to give you and Marianne, I'm going to give you a, a, a four-bedroom, five-bathroom house to live in. It's yours to use as if it belongs to you. No strings attached. Not only that, it has a pool, a large yard, it's got a three-car garage, and there's two cars and a Ford truck in there <laughs> for you to use whenever you want. There will always be gas. The kitchen is fully stocked and will remain fully stocked. You'll never have to shop for groceries. So all that is yours. You only have one, there's only one requirement. You gotta keep it perfectly clean. If you, if you don't keep it perfectly clean, then when I, when I come to inspect and I find even a little bit of dirt, 12 angry men are going to come and drag you in the street and beat the tar out of you and you're out of the house. Question, will Ron enjoy the house? No, Ron won't take it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, but what, what, he, won't, he won't enjoy it because what's always hanging over his head is a perfectly clean house, which we all know the moment you clean a house, even if it's that big, you got to start over again, right? You're already behind. All right, so here's the difference, though. I make the exact same offer to Ron. Everything is the same. And the demand is the same. Ron, you got to keep this place perfectly clean. But the difference is this. When I come, if I find dirt, I'll help you clean it. Now, can Ron enjoy the house? Yeah. You better believe he can. Now, could he take advantage of my offer and just let it go? He could, and we can deal with that later. But the point is, is that he can now enjoy the gifts I'm giving him. So when it comes to this relationship we have with God, God has promised us all these blessings now and in the future. And he is demanding holiness, absolute demanding it, right? He never wavers on that. 
The standard never changes. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter. This is what he tells us in the Bible we have to pursue. But he will help us to change. He'll help us to clean it up. And I just think that just alters then the dynamic of how we view this relationship we have with our Father in Heaven, with the, with the Creator God of the universe, who is holy and demands that we be holy. Right? It's still a fearful thing to fall into the hands of, of, of an angry God. But the bottom line is, He's my, also my Father. And so because of that, He will help clean up my life um, when I ask Him to. And so I, I think that's a, a good way to think about it, at least as far as the relationship. Yes, sir? That's a wonderful and I don't have a house like that for you, but yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, I, th- I thought it was good because as I thought about it, it just, to me, made a lot of sense. Um, but anyway, uh, that's, the, that's the dynamic that we're talking about here when we, when we say all these things about who Christ is and really understanding his preeminence and his majesty and his, and his greatness and his holiness. Um, he also says, we'll finish with this. He says that we are not shifting from the hope of the gospel that, that you heard. So, um, I forget, I think this is John Piper, but I'm not sure. He said this. So, the gospel gives a person without Christ and without hope a sure hope, an absolute assurance that God will do good in the future too and for the person who has received the gospel. This hope is now the anchor of one's soul in the midst of the difficulties of this present world which is passing away. Believers now have something eternal to live for because they have hope. Charles Spurgeon said this, the ground of that hope is, first, the rich, free, sovereign grace of God, because he has said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. That's Romans, by the way. Uh, The Lord claims for himself the prerogative of mercy, and as he can't exercise it without the violation of his justice through the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we rejoice in the fact that men are not saved because of any natural goodness of disposition or because of anything that they have done or ever shall do. The ground of our salvation is the merit of Christ, what Christ is and what Christ has done and what Christ has suffered. This is the ground upon which God saves the sons of men. Uh, And then he says, even Cardinal Bellerman, he was a cardinal when Martin Luther was around, the mighty opponent of Luther, perhaps the best opponent that he had, whose eyes saw much of the gospel light, once said this, that albeit that good works are necessary to salvation, of course he was wrong, but that was Catholic doctrine, yet inasmuch as no man can be sure that he has performed as many good works as will save him, it is upon the whole safest to trust alone in the merits and the sufferings of Christ. And of course, Luther said, Cardinal, the safest way suits me. If that be the best and safest, what better do any of us want? And so that's why we often talk about, again, the hope we have in Christ. Again, this idea that God will do good for us now and God will do good for us in the future. And as a result of that, the way we view our present circumstances is very different. The attitude that we have is different. There, there will be less of a factor of maybe being fearful of what might happen or what could happen, regardless of what form that would take. We don't have to worry about being rejected or, or being hungry or being poor. Some of this, I do think, it's actually maybe a little more difficult for people in our country to really recognize how great it is because we do have it easy. That's, that's, the, that's the fact of life. 
When we say we have it easy, as compared to how people live in many parts of the world, um, where a majority of Christians are, they're, they're poor. And, I mean, they are, it's back to where when they work, if they don't get paid that day, their family doesn't have dinner. I mean, it's day-to-day kind of living. They're very poor. Uh, they don't have access to doctors, except that we have. All that kind of stuff that we sometimes even can take for granted. And, man, they cling to this. And they have a very real joy uh, that is almost unbreakable. Uh, because not only has God answered prayer, but they trust God immensely in all of these things. Um, and so that's why sometimes the wealth we have, which, again, it's, we live here by the grace of God, and this is what God's chosen for us. Uh, but that can be an obstacle to maybe a, a deepening of the joy that we have in walking with the Lord and seeing him work. But there's ways around that, and the best way is to spend time in the word and let the grace of God work on your hearts, and he'll open up your understanding uh, of the world around you, of what God has done, and uh, of his kindness. And then maybe perhaps even begin to work through you work his kindness through you towards others and you can experience even more of God's presence really in a, in a terrific way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and patience and love. Again, Father, we do thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We do pray, Father, you would help us to continue in the faith, not only adhere intellectually to all the truths that we know uh, that are given to us and exhibited in the word of God, but Father, that our lives would lend credibility to what we say we believe that we will, we will experience firsthand the changing power of the Holy Spirit. And the Father, that we would desire to be changed in this way. The Father, we may be used by you, that we, may be, that we may truly experience on a personal level the great joy that comes from knowing you and from living for you and even, even experience your peace and the power of God in our lives. We ask now, Lord, that as you dismiss us from our time together here this evening, we ask, Lord, that you would use us as you see fit in the lives of others. And Father, may we experience much joy um, as you use us to bless other people. We do thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.